Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest on. His name is Jeffrey Morehouse. In addition to being an award-winning filmmaker, Jeffrey Morehouse volunteers much of his time as executive director of Bring Abducted Children Home. According to the U.S. government figures, more than 475 American children have been kidnapped by a parent to Japan since 1994. Bring Abducted Children Home is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the immediate return of internationally abducted children being wrongfully detained in Japan. It also strives to end Japan's human rights violation of denying children unfettered access to both parents. BAC Home works to increase public awareness through outreach on the crisis of international parental child abduction. He collaborates with an alliance of international partners working to end child abduction to and within in Japan. He is also founding partner in the Coalition to End International Parental Child Abduction, uniting organizations to work passionately to end international parental kidnapping of children through advocacy and public policy reform. In July of 2022, the U.S. Senate Resolution 568 noted the Coalition to End International Parental Child Abduction through Dedicated Advocacy and Regular Testimony has highlighted the importance of this issue to Congress and called on successive administrations to take concerted action to stop international parental child child abduction, and return kidnapped children back to the United States. I welcome you, Jeffrey Morehouse. How did you ever get involved in this? Yeah, thank you, Marianne. I really appreciate you having me on and look forward to talking with you and sharing this with your audience. So I got involved because I received a phone call uh, two days after my son was kidnapped to Japan. I had sole custody in Washington state where I live. There were travel and passport restraints in effect. But back in 2010, federal law didn't protect my child. Things have changed. So I got a phone call from another father whose son had been abducted from the Seattle area. And he then connected me with another man who was coming through the area. And I found out there was a network of parents that had gotten together and started a website, Bring Abducted Children Home. Mm. I had also had a background in nonprofit. And so about a year into being involved, we converted it to a nonprofit organization. So it is a 501c3. Mm-hmm. So, you know, u- utilizing that background that I had, I helped kind of bring it into that era. And since then, uh, became the executive director for the organization. So I'm a co founder of it, but I want to give credit to the other gentleman that started it as a website and as an idea. And so what we did in the beginning is we uh, spent time going to Washington, D.C., trying to raise public awareness about the crisis with Japan, meeting with the U.S. State Department, uh, meeting with the Japanese government officials, and really trying to create some movement. Mm -hmm. As a couple of years went on, there was a congressman on Capitol Hill who kept holding hearings on the issue. And that's when I started learning about the Hague Abduction Convention, Mm -hmm. because there was pressure on Japan to become a Hague signatory. This is a a motivating factor from the U.S. State Department. So the Hague Abduction Convention, the full name is actually the 1980 
Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction. And it's supposed to create a civil remedy if your child is abducted to a foreign country. So it all sounds good on paper. Uh, mm -hmm. Countries that are encouraged or pressured or motivated to sign on as signatories, the U.S. State Department makes the assumption that they're going to be good actors. But the problem we've seen is if they were a bad actor before, they continue to be a bad actor when they become a signatory. Though it's an international treaty agreement, there's no international body that has oversight to make sure they uphold the basic principles of the treaty. And so with Japan, where we've seen this is Japan has failed to provide access to our children. There's an article under the Hague Abduction Convention that is supposed to guarantee all parents access to their kidnapped child for these pre-convention era cases. And then if it's a post-convention era case, uh, for example, Japan became a Hague signatory on April 1st, 2014. If the kidnapping occurred after that time point, you're supposed to be able to file an application for a return and it's supposed to be adjudicated very quickly through the legal process, but that's not what's happening in Japan. They slow the process down. Uh, there have been a handful of cases that have pursued it. It's gone all the way up to the Japanese Supreme Court. They find technical reasons that are outside the scope of the convention to block and overturn a return order. But even if you get a return order, it relies on the kidnapping parent to abide by that order. Law enforcement in Japan has almost no power to enforce judicial rulings, even though in response to the U.S. government actions toward Japan, which we can touch on later, Japan created essentially a, a law that's not uh, effective. It, it still has so many loopholes, so many possibilities for it never to get to that point to try and attempt to use this new law that getting a return still becomes highly, highly problematic. And uh, it probably just never happens. How often do you get a return? Have you heard of any parent coming back with their child from Japan? It, it's been very rare. Um, so I've been doing this now for almost 13 years. It'll be 13 years in June. Mm -hmm. And in all that time, I know of one case where an American child as a teenager escaped from Japan. It's a unique situation in that neither parent had Japanese ancestry. So the kidnapping parent was using Japan as a known safe harbor country. Uh, I know of another case where the kidnapping parent died, uh, drank himself to death. The mother here which was we were in contact with she was very fortunate in that the grandparent in japan voluntarily handed the child back over to her wow and they made it home mm -hmm. the grandparent could have just as easily said no we're not going to do that uh because i know of a couple of other cases where the parent is no longer alive in japan and the grandparents have seized control of the child mm -hmm. and they've used a legal process there to do it the cases that I do know where children have come back, uh, there was one case that started shortly after the Hague Convention was implemented, but it involved two Japanese nationals, and there were four children involved. They were living in Oregon, <clears throat> and the courts in Japan used a kind of a unique approach through what's called habeas corpus, which mm -hmm. is a legal term. You know, you're familiar with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
for your audience members that maybe aren't, essentially it means the court has decided that the individual has been taken against their will and should be returned to the court. Um, so this was used in Japan, though I had heard of it never being used effectively before, according to my research, and I had touched on this with legal scholars there. And essentially it was on the books, but just not something that's been used effectively. Well, it happened to be used in this case, but there are questions whether it was used because it involved two Japanese nationals versus a case with an American parent who had been victimized by this. Mm -hmm. uh, so those children came home. I happened to know the attorney in Japan. So I spoke with her directly and it was her view that this was really a one-off situation because unlike the United States, Marianne, where cases are public, mm -hmm. everything in Japan is private unless it reaches the Japanese Supreme Court and then there is a published record. So it's hard to use precedents or previous case history in a current case, unless you happen to be using the same lawyer or somebody happened to write a legal policy paper or position paper on a particular case. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a, a fundamental problem there as mm -hmm. well. Uh, and then there have been a couple of other cases that I'm aware of that were able to get the child back from Japan mm -hmm also considered one-offs really from talking with the people involved mm -hmm. in these cases rather than what it should be, which is if your child is kidnapped, you file that return application, it goes into the courts quickly and efficiently, and the child is returned to the country of habitual residence, which is the Hague term for where the child came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why does Japan feel they can just do whatever they want? I, I think that's, yeah, <laughs> great question. Uh, sorry, did you have more? No, go ahead. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons in Japan is it's a single custody country. So when there is a divorce there, regardless of the circumstances, either the mother or the father becomes the legal parent and the other parents' custodial rights are terminated. Uh, I would be just as much of a parent to that child as that biological father or mother would be mm -hmm. at the end. And so the parent that seizes custody in Japan, by whatever means possible, maintains the upper hand. They have control. They've created a status quo that the courts just rarely ever overturn. Mm -hmm. And this came up in my case because uh, I've had two court cases in Japan where my ex-wife attempted to seize jurisdictional control even though she signed an agreed order in the United States that said the U.S. was the home country, and if there was a jurisdictional question, our child should be returned to the U.S. courts for adjudication. The courts in Japan, they acknowledged the U.S. order had legal effect, and then they also noted that she didn't have legal authority to take our child to Japan, and then they did nothing to change the status quo. So that's one of the problems in Japan is something that we've coined or others have coined the continuity principle. They'll maintain continuity no matter what. Mm -hmm. And there's a level of, you know, from uh, an American perspective, we would probably call it corruption, but it's legal in Japan where attorneys representing a parent get a percentage of the child support until mm -hmm. that child support ends. So they're financially incentivized to win a case at no matter what cost. So therefore, you've got attorneys in Japan that are advising a mother or father to abduct the child 
domestically in Japan because they don't have laws against this, mm -hmm. go back to their hometown where their parents were, which is a common pattern, go move in with your parents, hunker down for a little bit, they get the case filed, and you've developed a status quo. And this just came up recently. An American parent reached out to us. She's living in Japan. She came home one day, letter on the table. The father moved out, took the child, uh, said, don't find me. Uh, you're being served with court papers. She received an email very quickly from the attorney representing the father who admitted he told the father to take the child and leave. So that's a, an enormous fundamental problem there as well. The second reason Japan, I believe, doesn't do anything, and this actually came up in, I think, 2017. We got a recording from the Japanese Diet, which is their Congress, their parliament, where the then foreign minister, who's now the prime minister of Japan, was answering questions on the floor. And he said the U.S. State Department has never use the tools that are provided in the Goldman Act, which we can touch on as well, against a country that they found non-compliant. So they called out the US government for saying it's essentially feckless. They're not holding countries accountable. Accountable. Don't be worried. And this was coming on the heels of Japan being cited. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem too, in that other countries, Japan included, they don't believe that the U.S. government will take the action that Congress instructed them to take under this act. So with the, they're saying the United States dropped the ball, essentially, and that's just too bad. Uh, yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. And, <laughs> and so uh, what's supposed to happen is the Goldman Act, so the long name for it is the Sean and David Goldman International Child Abduction Prevention and Return Act of 2014. Some of your listeners may remember a case back in the uh, 2006 to 2008, 2009 era. I don't remember the exact time frame, but there was a child abducted from New Jersey to Brazil named Sean Goldman, and his father was David. And so this case got a lot of national media attention. It got some interest from members of Congress and there was pressure put on the Brazilian government. And so the way this was done effectively is aid that was being provided to the Brazilian government was threatened to be withheld unless Sean was returned. That's kind of a shorthand version, but mm -hmm. you know, through the buildup of all this pressure, eventually the Brazilian government capitulated and Sean was returned to his father, where they they're now doing well. And so this law was named in honor of them and mm. the work that David had done in his case and also advocacy as well. Mm. So within it, the the essence of it is it's supposed to create a mechanism so that countries are better actors of the Hague Convention and that they ought to provide a better means to resolve abduction cases also in non-Hague countries and to hold countries accountable for non-compliance with their obligations. And it creates an annual report that's publicly available. Uh, it's provided to Congress. It's supposed to be released at the end of April each year. Uh, they're usually a little late, but it does come out. And then they're supposed to release what's called an action report based on the tools that Congress provided. So the they aren't necessarily meant to be sequential. 
but one of the tools is called a demarche, which is a fancy, fancy uh, bureaucratic diplomatic term for a letter. It's an official letter from government to government. And so that is the only tool the State Department has used since the Goldman Act became law in 2014. So year after year, when we analyze the actions reports, which are also publicly available, we see that they're continuing to use demarches and nothing else. So that's a fundamental problem too. And Congress has held them accountable in oversight hearings time and again, and they respond, we look at all the tools and then we decide which one is the best to utilize uh, for the objective. So that's really a false premise because they have a, a lot greater ability to do something. They're just choosing not to. And we saw this recently in the in the Brittany Griner case, right? Which everyone heard about nationally, or probably unless they've had the TV and the internet turned off and the radio and podcasts, mm -hmm. where the State Department and the US government was able to utilize a variety of things in order to get her return. And it happened to be a prisoner exchange. Mm -hmm. So with international parental child abduction, we have a variety of tools from a federal level that we can use, one of which is withholding aid to certain countries that we provide it. Uh, another tool that's been uh, used or talked about being used through legislation are tax credits to developing nations that we provide to stimulate economic growth. With countries like Japan, we have um, work exchange visas, we have student exchange mm -hmm. visas, there are you know, tools like that that could be used that aren't part of the Goldman Act since state is currently refusing to use the tools that are available. So that's what we really was exposed in that uh, hearing in the Japanese diet by the former foreign minister, now prime minister, when he laid it bare and said the US government just hasn't used the tools so we really have nothing to be concerned about. Oh. <laughs> It, this is so frustrating. Um, even for your group, and you know, even when I learned about this, I just was so shocked that they can just get away with this. And I saw a YouTube video where uh, parents were in the street with signs, you know, they want their kid back to be able to even see their child. And they just, they're just doing their own thing. Yes. Yes. One of the ways that that became, uh, well, it was a moment of true honesty from a Japanese government official where we were meeting with them, I think it was in May of 2018, uh, one of my colleagues in our organization, and this was at their embassy in Washington, D.C. And I said to the, uh, the highest ranking person in the meeting from the government, who was a uh, consular, uh, I think he was the head of chancery, so relatively high in their policy department within the embassy. And I asked him, what will it take for us to get access to our children under the Hague Convention with Japan? And I paused and he said, it really depends on the mother and the child's wishes. I was shocked, mm -hmm. but I also really appreciated his frank honesty. And I'm not sure he really meant to let the truth come out. But that was the truth. They don't care about upholding the convention and they are deferring everything to the kidnapping parent. And I, and I just want to note, there are fathers that have kidnapped too. It's not just mothers. Uh, for the international cases, we with Japan in particular, 
we tend to see it skews more towards mothers being abducted, abductors. Mm -hmm. uh, other countries, it might be fathers and others might be more split. And domestically in Japan, there are certainly many fathers that have abducted as well. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they've ceded all control to the kidnapping parent without accountability is just astonishing. And you wonder what, you know, this child is thinking, you know, one minute you're in the United States, the next minute you're in Japan, you don't even speak that language, maybe. Right. You know, it just, it just amazes me that I guess the um, our U.S. government really can't put the screws to Japan to make this stop. This should have been stopped a long time ago. Yes. I Well, they can. They can do it. They're choosing not to. So uh, two things within that. The, the first question regarding what are the children thinking? So I remember early on people saying to me, because I it was getting out there doing public speaking very early in the process, mm -hmm. trying to educate people, trying to get public awareness, create policy change as well. And people would say to me, well, at least you know he's safe. He's with his mother. And so we've got a cultural misunderstanding of what child abduction is mm -hmm. in this country. And I remember as a child, I'm old enough to remember that they didn't educate us in elementary school about stranger danger, mm -hmm. something that came a little bit later. And that is important, but stranger abduction, and I know people in that community as well. I'm involved in a revision of a family guide to missing children through the Amber Alert program in the DOJ, Department of Justice. Uh, mm -hmm. So I know some of those folks, but uh, it's a minority of the cases. And it's true, they often don't end very well, and they are tragic. Mm -hmm. But the actual real danger is within your home. And so the misunderstanding that people have already is one of the barriers. So people, I think, believe that the child is somehow safe because they're with the other parent. Mm -hmm. Yet, we know that's not true. So the Supreme Court a few years ago, I, I looked it up recently because it came up in discussion with a, a congressional staff member. I think it was in a case back in around 2010, but I'd have to look to be certain. It, it may have been earlier. But in a ruling, the Supreme Court of the U.S. recognized that family abduction is one, a form of child abuse with potentially devastating consequences for a child which may include negative impacts on the physical and mental well-being of the child, and two, can cause a child to experience a loss of community and stability, leading to loneliness, anger, and fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. So if the listeners out there, just imagine for a moment, just close your eyes and imagine you wake up and you're in another country where people are speaking a different language that you don't understand. You don't know how to contact your family, your friends. Your your dog is missing. Mm -hmm. Your toys are gone. Food is unfamiliar. And now you're told just to, well, you may not be told anything. Mm -hmm. Or you may be told, uh, one of the things that I learned from National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a very large nonprofit organization, gets a lot of federal funding. Uh, you're, you're, you may be aware of them or your listeners may mm -hmm. be aware as well. 
They are often behind some of the missing persons posters that you'll see in your communities around the country. And so we, at a conference a few years ago, met with some of their reunification staff. And so when children that are victims of international parental child abduction are reunited, which is rare, but does happen, they're facing all kinds of challenges. So they pointed to four categories that they often hear that the child is told during their time of abduction. And one is the other parent is dead. Mm. So if you're held captive in another country, cut off from all communication, and you're just told they're dead by the only parent that you are with, you probably tend to believe that. And that probably cuts you off from even searching for your other parent. They're also told the other parent is dangerous, was harmful to you. And so if you're told that repeatedly over enough time, depending on your age, that mythology can become your truth. They're told the other parent didn't want you. So that plays right into abandonment because you're being indoctrinated with the belief that that other parent abandoned you. And the more recent one that came up, they said, is uh, especially if it's a mother abducting, I don't know who the father is. That might be through in vitro fertilization or they just don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's another way of erasing the possibility of the child wanting to contact the parent. So the damage that's done psychologically is real and deep. And now you compound that with if they start to find out the truth, because the parent that's searching for their child is out there publicly utilizing the internet, presenting their side of the story, that's going to come up into conflict with that myth mythology and shatter them <laughs> psychologically. And so my son was kidnapped on Father's Day of 2010. That was the last time I saw him <laughs> or heard from him. The only information I've gotten from him, it was through a report from the last court case I had in Japan that ended it in 2017. So there was a document my attorney gave me in Japan who uh, got it from my son's attorney or the attorney that was appointed to represent him, a little bit like a, a guardian ad litem, mm -hmm. uh, to give this impression that he has independent representation. So mm -hmm. very much a, a game that's being played in the courts in Japan uh, to give that appearance. But his attorney asked him, according to this document, do you ever think of your father? Mm. And uh, the report was, my son started tearing up and said, sometimes I dream of him at night. So he, at that point, it was 2016. He's six years into his kidnapping. And he's holding on to some fragment of his truth and wish, uh, not being able to talk about it with anyone, because certainly my ex-wife would not have supported that. Uh, in fact, we, you know, during that case, my son's grandfather was dying, was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the end of 2016. Uh, I used the relationships that I developed in the State Department to got, get somebody who's the special advisor for children's issues to engage with the Japanese government, to make a plea that they plea to the attorney for the mother, that they show some humanitarian mm -hmm. empathy and allow my son to visit his grandfather who was dying, who he was very close with. 
And uh, they refused. They refused entirely. So, yes. And that's based on whatever the mother or that parent says. They just go by it. It's Yes. Is it almost like, I'm very sorry all that happened to you. Uh, Thank you. Is this an ancient cultural thing that they just let the mother have the child as well? Well, it, it's a little bit like this country statistically where, you know, after things shifted in the 60s, I believe it was in this country, and there was a certain time period in Japan as well, that roughly 80% of the time, give or take, the child would end up with the mother. So that's, you know, so a challenge that I faced when I was seeking custody in Washington state, which I eventually won because of the risk factors with the mother mm -hmm. uh, that we proved in court. But it really goes back to in Japan, all control is ceded to the parent that has physical custody, regardless of how they obtained it. And also regardless of where they are in the divorce process, if it's a case going through courts in Japan regarding custody. And so that's what we were involved in, where she was trying to reinterpret the U.S. custody order under Japanese law. So in the U.S., of course, we got 50 different states with 50 shades of custody laws. Mm -hmm. A lot of it overlaps, but there are some differences in Washington state. Uh, we don't really have a single custody system. If you are going to strip the other parent of any legal custody rights, what I understood by my attorney at the time is it really required that they had to be a provable danger to the child, mm -hmm. often through sexual abuse, drug abuse, or physical harm, and, and really proven. Hearsay is not allowed, mm -hmm. of course. In Japan, hearsay is allowed as evidence. So, you know, my attorney here, I remember once telling me, uh, the nickname for family court is liar's court because anything mm -hmm. goes, but mm -hmm. there's a process for disproving false allegations. In Japan, it's really anything goes mm -hmm. because of the allowance of hearsay. And so in my cases there, she was trying to reinterpret her agreement of the U.S. custody order under Japanese law and get them to give her sole custody or single custody. And there are two forms of single custody that you know we don't have to get into because it's a little technical but when she lost the first time she attempted to do that again so because she physically had our child there the courts viewed it as her having de facto status quo custody and anything that uh, was going to be allowed was up to her discretion mm -hmm. so even in the second case there that spanned uh from 2015 through 2017 i think it was where she actually took my Hague application for access and weaponized it against me. She filed a new motion for custody in the courts in Japan. She cited that I applied for access under the convention, and she was concerned about that, which meant I couldn't, without putting myself at legal jeopardy, continue to pursue access under the convention, uh, because in Japan, they don't uh, wall off mediated discussions or arbitration so you can use it to use as evidence in another case so that where it was going to become legal jeopardy or risk mm. and then with that uh, even though the courts had asked me to provide a reunification plan at the onset of that second case 
And even my attorney was encouraged at the time, my Japanese attorney. But it was really all for show because in the end, they had no real intention of reuniting him with me. They were just stringing me along in the process. Do you think your own attorney was stringing you along as well? I don't because I was very selective with my second attorney. He also is somebody that had his own child abducted domestically mm. within Japan. And I was looking for somebody that was already out in the media, trying to create more awareness and really a fighter. Uh, so I think he was the right person at the right time. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's um, it, that's rigged, perhaps, that it's just rigged yes. that way, the system. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, it goes back to what others have called the continuity principle in Japan. It's a term that I've used as well as I learned more about it and got to understand it. I've I've used that term in Congress through a couple of different hearings, and it absolutely holds true in Japan. And, and they said so in their ruling in 2017, where they noted that she didn't have permission of the U.S. courts to mm -hmm. take the child to Japan, but we're not going to change anything. No, that's... That is so not right. Uh, yes. I'm so sorry. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. Do you know, like, mm. if it can be fixed, or is this something that's going to linger on, like our miserable family court system? Yeah, great question. So, <laughs> I I believe it can be, or I wouldn't still be doing this. Mm. Uh, so I'm seeing indication of that. One of the ways is. We've partnered internationally. I've helped kind of build international alliance relationships with stakeholders, parents in other countries, so they can work with their governments to build more pressure on Japan from the outside. Because that's one of the things very effective with Japan is uh, it's called gaiatsu or foreign pressure. Mm -hmm. It gives cover for Japanese politicians to say, we have to do this because that international pressure is too great. And so one of the ways we strategically tried to do that is by going to the UN Human Rights Committee. Mm -hmm. I was there in October briefing the UN Human Rights Committee on Japan and its violations of multiple treaties. Mm -hmm. And we partnered with a couple of Japanese-based organizations and another European partner on a, a large comprehensive report on the issue. Mm -hmm. And they took this up in the committee and when the Japanese delegation appeared before them, uh, and I sat through that session as well, they raised this issue and put it on the record in their final report. And so it's it may be seen as small and inconsequential by some that are looking for the big change, the big sudden change. And I, and I get that, and I understand that. But creating policy change is a long, slow, arduous process that mm -hmm. takes a lot of strategic discipline and time and patience. I wish it weren't the case, but I do see the change to your question. And one of the ways I, I see it now is there's been more pressure and call for reforming child custody in Japan. And so it's come out through the press recently that the in the past year that the Japanese government is looking at implementing shared custody legislation what I'm seeing so far is it's not going to go far enough, but it's a start. Mm -hmm. It looks like right now, based on the reports I'm seeing, that they're going to create it as an option if both parents want to have it. 
which is problematic because we're talking about domestic and international abductions. Mm -hmm. So it's inherent that the abducting parent clearly doesn't want to have it. Otherwise, they wouldn't abduct. They could have created a quasi-shared custody by just allowing the other parent to have consistent visitation and being cooperative. That already is possible to do that in, in, a, in a way that the parent that has that legal custody just allows it, sees it as the right thing for the child. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's going to get there in this round, but it's movement forward. And if they fall short, there will be a condemnation of, of falling short, you know, from mm -hmm. international actors on this. And that will hopefully push and stimulate them further forward. Another way that, oh, go ahead. No, please. no, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, back to something you mentioned earlier. Uh, does Japan not believe that the U.S. is going to, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that the U.S. is going to take action here? One of the ways we've been calling for action and trying to get better support is from our own president. So going back to the Obama administration, the Japanese government, through their prime ministers, has through the press in Japan, and then also through arrangements, gotten the U.S. president to meet with Japanese families of kidnapping victims to North Korea. So if you go back into history, between 1997, 1977 and 1983, uh, I think there were 21 or so cases of Japanese nationals kidnapped, believably, believably to be kidnapped by the North Korean government, and then used as operatives to train their spy services, essentially, to infiltrate Japanese society. Hmm. So it's really horrible what has happened. And I it was something I first became aware of when I was living in New York in the 90s and early 2000s, and something that I believe should be rectified. Those families need resolution. And I'm, I'm glad that the American president has met with those families and provided support through the press and tried to provide support uh, to pressure North Korea. But the Japanese government should provide the same in return to the families of the now 489 American children kidnapped to Japan since 1994. And yet we've been rejected time and time again. We got the issue to then President, uh, then Vice President Biden uh, roughly 2011, 2012, through contacts we had, and we know it made on the agenda, made it on the agenda with President Obama at the time, with the Japanese Prime Minister in one of their meetings, and we've continued to try and request through contacts to get the U.S. President to do that again. So since President Obama, President Trump has done the same thing. I had contacts in the administration. I've been to the White House twice for meeting or a couple times for meetings mm -hmm. uh, that I've run in the White House on policy on this issue, not just Japan, but the entire abduction issue. Uh, but we never saw President Trump do it either. Uh, we've taken the same tactic in trying to get President Biden to speak up for American children. He's also like President Obama and President Trump before him, met with Japanese families of their victims, but nothing for American families. So that would change things, you know, mm -hmm. to, to stand in a meeting in the Oval Office with the president who says, we will hold Japan accountable. They must return kidnapped American children and provide reunification. They're a great ally and a great friend, mm -hmm. but friends, you know, to quote my friend, 
Congressman Chris Smith, friends don't steal other countries' children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There has to be accountability. So we do have the ability. So it's a choice not to at this juncture. Well, when you know, you've know you got a parent taking mm-hmm. a kid overseas, yes. and they've got to show the passport, and they ask why you're going, or whatever they ask, um, what excuses are they making? They're, they're just leaving to go live with or visit with grandparents or something. Right. So unfortunately, there's nothing under, we don't have what's called exit immigration. So if you've traveled internationally to certain countries, and some of your listeners have too, when you leave, they check you in as we do in the United States when you enter the country. But in many countries, they also check your passport and entry visa when you exit. We don't do that in the United States. So it's very easy for abductors, uh, as happened in my case with my son, for my ex-wife to obtain a passport illegally, as she did, from the Japanese government and leave the country without any oversight. That's something we're trying to get change on. It's very hard in this country because it rubs up against people's perception of freedom of movement and being watched and and where they're traveling to. Mm -hmm. But there are certain upsides to it. And this is one of them. Also international terrorism, people coming in and out of the country. If we did have better exit control, uh, we would know people that are moving in and out freely. So Mm -hmm. in my case, I had a passport restraint that barred her from holding or obtaining a passport or leaving the state of Washington. And none of that was effective at the time. Since 2014, when the Goldman Act was passed into law, there was a section in there that requires Homeland Security under Custom and Border Protection to provide what's called now a prevent abduction program. And so on the resource page of our website, we've got a link to that program. And so if any of your listeners or attorneys that are out there are unfamiliar with that, I'd encourage you to take a look. But if you have a legal U.S. court order that says the child is not allowed to be removed from your county or state or the United States, Mm -hmm. you can enter that child into this federal program through the U.S. State Department, also linked on our website. Uh, and they can enter that order with Custom and Border Protection, and now your child or children are in the system. And so if the other parent at that point obtains an airline ticket, mm-hmm. that goes into a database that's shared in advance with the federal government by airlines. So it's kind of caught in advance that, hey, there's a ticket for this child out there. And so there's an alert that's in place. And so then in that instance, what is supposed to be happening is when they scan their passport, whether it's a U.S. passport, and this is one of the things that was crucial with this change, whether it's a U.S. passport or a foreign passport where we believe most of the abductions occur on, that will be flagged. Mm -hmm. And that child should not get through the checkpoint and ever leave the country. And that's an incredible change. If that had existed in 2010, uh, my son Mochi never would have left, never would have made it out of the airport. Oh, that's a shame. That, yeah. but I, I don't know. Sometimes it takes something really bad to happen to get things moving. Maybe on and, yes. and not to 
you know, your situation is devastating. I cannot imagine. Um, but I'm just very disappointed in Japan that they're treating the, I guess the majority would be fathers so lightly that, because I've always thought, you know, these Eastern cultures were male dominated. So you would think they would want the father to be in the child's life. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, trying to think like them, but you would think they would say that. But I read somewhere that these courts are saying, well, no, this is a family issue. You know, it's, it's, we're not dealing with it. Yes. If there's an abduction. Yes, I think that's definitely a problem with it. And they fit it back under this continuity principle about status quo, no matter how they got into that situation, they're just loath to overturn it, mm. you know, to, you know, to illustrate this in another extreme level. After I won the first case in 2014, I said to my lawyer, a different lawyer at the time that I had in Japan, can I go pick up my son and leave? And she said, well, yes, because they had ruled that the U.S. custody order had legal effect in Japan. And she said, yes, you can, but you should really get your ex-wife's permission. So that's mm -hmm. an oxymoron, really. <laughs> if I have a court order, why would I need anybody's permission? Additionally, I asked her, well, can I get law enforcement there to help enforce it? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, no, they wouldn't do that. It's a family issue. Mm -hmm. So you're really left on your own, and abductors know this in Japan, to the point even where, and these were, you know, there have been cases that I know of where the parent knew where the child was and went to that home just to try and check on their child, mm -hmm. just to be present, to say, I'm here, and, and not committing violence, not breaking into the home or anything, but the abducting parent knew that they could simply call the police and then they're harassed or removed from the scene. So that's another thing that parents face. Mm -hmm. uh, and I experienced that once in, in 2012. I went to Japan during New Year's holidays, which are the largest holiday in Japan. It lasts three days. Mm -hmm. That would be the most likely day that children and grandchildren would come home to visit everyone and stay together. So I knew that would be my best chance if my son were visiting his grandparents' home with his mother, that I might be able to catch him there. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't quite remember where they were living. I, I'd been to the house a few times. Google Maps wasn't as comprehensive as, mm -hmm. as it is now. So I was working a little bit from memory and, and rough maps from, I think, Yahoo Maps at the time. And I, I hiked in the middle of the night. Uh, it was snowing. It was freezing mm. uh, and it was dark. And so I was hiking through the snow and on back roads until I found their house. And then I went back the next day with a, a local Japanese person to film it for me, for my own self-protection and also to document it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is actually on my son's personal page website is, is something I did in the past. And when we were there, the grandmother, uh, when she saw it was me, she shut the door immediately on mm. me. And we heard her on the phone in the background calling somebody. And I assumed initially she was probably calling my ex-wife. Mm. And so we waited a little bit. The Japanese person tried to speak to her in Japanese. And mm. we realized after five minutes we weren't going to get anywhere. 
Uh, I was just trying to leave a, a gift for my son for the holiday mm. and hope that it would get to him. And we left. Months later during the court case that was going on at the time, my attorney came back and said, well, my ex-wife's attorney said there was police involvement in the case, and this is why they can't give any access to your child. <laughs> and she did due diligence. She went down to the police station and asked about it. They had no record mm-hmm. of anything. So this is where they were allowed to lie. But we believe probably what happened was the grandmother was calling the police mm-hmm. because that was the strategy to get rid of a parent that was seeking access to the child. Mm-hmm. So this is something that systemically happens in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. It's really up to the abducting parent. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are uh, fathers sitting in prison over there, you know, based on a false allegation. Yes. Uh, I, I think there, I, I don't know all of the details. I do know of some cases where parents have been put in jail, uh, held in prison there for a while. There was an Australian journalist and parent who was imprisoned, I think now two years ago, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and held for about 30 days. Mm-hmm. There was a case from the U.S. that predated my involvement by about uh, a year or so. I think it was 2009. Uh, my friend, uh, he was one of the original founders of Bring Abducted Children Home, and he had a legal court order. He had talked to the police in Japan, and they said, yes, you can go get your children. He tried to do that. He did everything he was supposed to. He tried to do that. And uh, when he was getting toward the U.S. consulate at the time, he was being chased by Japanese police. Our consular uh, guards or officials that were there, they usually have U.S. Marines that are at our embassies and consulates around the world. They handed him back over to the Japanese police. Nobody protected this man. So, (laughs) yes, You are at real risk. I always was concerned Mm -hmm. about that risk factor of making sure I was not violating any laws on the trips that I went to Japan because of my personal case, but also my high profile on in advocacy, uh, you know, with our organization really being the leading organization internationally on this issue with Japan, that something wouldn't happen to me. Mm. I'm sure you, I mean, if that was me, I would be worried about it as well. They could just call out a false accusation and you're going to be sitting in a Japanese prison. Yes. Yeah. That that possibility always existed. Uh, I don't know if it is, I don't think it still exists, but for mm-hmm. myself, because of my son's age, but I still don't really know. Mm-hmm. What, what a horrible thing to go through and no parent should have to go through this, especially this. No, no. no. And, and that's one of the things, you know, that myself and my colleagues in the coalition to inter- end international parental child abduction really work passionately about is if you have a potential situation, take the necessary steps from a prevention standpoint that now exist, get that court order. You know, look, if, like I mentioned before, if you're an attorney or a judge and you're not familiar that this exists, learn about it. Reach out to me, you know, reach out to us or our organization. I'll be happy to talk with you. I know a lot about it. I can connect you with certain people in government that can explain it. And I can explain it too. It's a real program 
that actually has effectively worked on both U.S. and foreign passports. And that foreign passport component is really one of the keys with it because U.S. passports require both parents to sign the application mm -hmm. unless one parent has a sole order that allows them to get it without that other parent's consent. Mm -hmm. And there's also a prevention tool called the Child's Passport Issuance Alert Program just for U.S. passports. Mm -hmm. But all it really does is it places a pause on the application until the State Department, the U.S. State Department, reviews court orders and determines whether the applicant person, uh, applicant parent has legal authority to get the U.S. passport without the other parent. Hmm. So I've seen, uh, I know of one case that we were involved in several years ago where it turned out that the parent applying actually had a legal order that she didn't need the other parent's permission. Hmm. So six or eight weeks later, she got the U.S. passport for the children. But when we're talking about foreign passports, even though like in a case like my own, I had a legal order in the U.S., but the a foreign government's not required to abide by the, that order. So I had notified, and this is what we advise parents to do as well. I notified all of the Japanese consulates in the United States and the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. that I had a court order. I was the custodial parent. Please do not issue a passport for my child. And I cited my court order. They actually, unbeknownst to me at the time that my child was abducted, had issued a policy in April of that year that they weren't going to give passports if the other parent objected in writing. <laughs> and they put a few other barriers in place to make it a little more complicated for people to meet their requirements. But then they didn't adhere to that. Mm. They did in Seattle at their consulate, who I found out through my ex-wife at the time before the kidnapping, uh, refused to give her the Japanese passport. And she then asked me to contact them to allow her to do it. And this is while I had a legal court order in effect. Mm. Uh, and then while that order was still in effect, she went a couple of hours down the freeway into Portland and obtained a passport from them even though they were also put on the record as well with notification twice, which I've got a record of. But there are some indications in, in this case, uh, nothing provable, but circumstantial that she may have had an inside contact there. I know that happened in another case of a kidnapping from the US to Japan, where the kidnapping parent had inside connections to the Japanese consulate. So really this program, the Prevent Abduction Program, has great value because it it's not just limited to U.S. passports. Mm -hmm. They collect information about the potential abductor that's kept in the database. So I don't want to say too much more about it, you know, to give away all of the, the kind of inside uh, information about how it works. But I really would encourage anyone that has any level of concern mm -hmm. to explore getting the right order in their case and getting their child entered into the program. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm glad I had you on, and I'd like to have you on as a return guest. Thank you. Uh, especially when you have, you know, updates about this, anything you'd like to add, you're always welcome back on. And uh, if so people much. want to reach you, they, they can just Google you or... Mm -hmm. Okay, that's... Yeah, they can, they can Google my name and, and come up with me. Uh, you can also go to the website, 
uh, for Bring Abducted Children Home, which is backhome.org without the K because the kids are still missing. So it's B-A-C-H-O-M-E.org. And reach out to us through that. I really appreciated you having me on, Marianne. I'd love to come back again. Oh, uh, there's some things coming up in federal legislation mm -hmm. that uh, I was hopeful to be able to share today. It's delayed a little bit, but mm -hmm. I think that'll create some changes with uh, some of the advocacy work that we've been working on over the years and how your listeners too can get involved. Because you know, one of the things is change doesn't just happen. It takes people working on it mm -hmm. and working on it in a very strategic long-term way mm -hmm. and so we're always you know happy when people are interested in being involved in some capacity i recognize people aren't going to necessarily wipe their schedules clean to just work on this as i do and, and some others but there are a lot of small ways that people can be supportive of this work as well mm -hmm. well thank you so much um and i appreciate your time this was great to talk to you um don't jump off Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here in the future with Jeff Morehouse and other exciting guests. Thank you, Mr. Morehouse. Thank you so much, Marianne.